This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Kathy, spelled with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. This is Killer Destinations. Today's destination is Brooks, Wisconsin. Brooks is a very small, unincorporated community in east-central Adams County, Wisconsin, which is about 80 miles north of Madison, Wisconsin's capital. Brooks is a very rural community, and because there are so few people, last count on the population was fewer than 100, everybody knows each other and everybody kind of knows everybody's business. But in 1974, this small rural town was the scene of a double murder. Before we get into the case, Kathy and I want to give credit to a journalist named Richard W. Yeager, who reported on this case for the Wisconsin State Journal. He conducted an in-depth investigation over many months and wrote many stories about the case, and much of the information contained in this podcast come from him. In October of 1974, a young man named Kenny Ray Rykoff was 19 years old. He had grown up in the small town of Brooks, Wisconsin, but he dropped out of high school during his junior year, and he'd been living on his own since he was 17. His parents had gotten divorced that same year, and after Kenny left Brooks, he worked jobs in construction and in a feed mill, and then he returned to his hometown and was working for a man named Butch Collins, who Kenny had gone to high school with. Now, full disclosure, I didn't know what a feed mill was. (laughs) Do you know? I did not know. Now, neither of us grew up in a rural town, so I don't feel quite as badly, but a feed mill is where feed for animals like livestock, poultry, and what they term companion animals, but I'm assuming are pets, are produced. So it's where all of the different byproducts come into one place, grains, what have you, and then they're produced into food that's then sold. Good to know. I think it's like the traditional dog food that you find in stores, but then it's sold in bigger batches. Got it. Too much information. (laughs) I think so. A little bit. Yeah. Butch and Kenny sold wood pulp in the Brooks area. And Butch's father, a man named Marvin Collins Jr., had a saw shop at which Marvin would sharpen the boys' saws for them. Kenny was obviously very close with the Collins family. And he had said to many people that he saw Marvin Collins as a second father figure. Kenny and Butch were roommates for only a few months when Butch Collins was killed in a car accident while driving Kenny's car. Butch was alone in the vehicle, and he struck a parked semi-truck trailer. But this wasn't the first or the last accident that Kenny or one of his vehicles would be involved in. About a year before Butch's accident, Kenny struck and killed a little girl named Georgianne Willett, who was only eight years old while she was riding her bike along the side of Highway 82. Apparently, it was a dark, foggy night, so Kenny wasn't charged in that accident. But then a month after Butch died and Kenny's car was totaled, Marvin Collins loaned Kenny a car to use. When he was using this borrowed vehicle, Kenny ran a stop sign and was hit by another car. Mr. Collins' youngest son, 
and Butch's brother, Kelly, was in the car at the time and broke his leg. Kenny's punishment for this was a ticket for running the stop sign and a fine. So Butch dies, and a month later, Kelly breaks his leg. Correct. While, while in a car. Driven by Kenny. On December 11th, 1974, only 12 days after the accident where Kelly Collins broke his leg, the body of his father, Marvin Collins Jr., and a gentleman named Irvin Schilling were found in Mr. Collins' small chainsaw shop. They had been shot with the newspapers describing their bodies as, quote, bullet riddled, unquote. Mr. Collins was well known in Brooks. Not only was it a very small town, but he lived there for most of his life, and he was only 40 when he died. He had owned several local businesses at one point. Mr. Schilling wasn't well known because he lived about 25 miles away from Brooks in a town called Mauston. He was apparently in the wrong place at the wrong time, having simply gone to the saw shop that morning to buy a chainsaw. You know what's interesting, Kathy, is that in the article that I was reading, it described Mr. Collins as a very large man weighing about 200 pounds. Which shows you how the size of people have changed over time. I, I feel like that's the average size of a man. You know what I mean? I agree. Like just like an average man. But I don't, in 74, I mean, I he was a very large man of 200 pounds. So yeah. I agree. I, I think it just says a lot about how our culture has changed. Oh, totally. Like how much we eat now. Exactly. <laughs> My gosh. No judgment. <laughs> At the time of the murders, Kenny was renting a trailer about 70 feet from the shop which was owned by Mr. Collins. According to Kenny, he'd gotten up about 7 a.m. on the morning of December 11th and gone over to the chainsaw shop to get saws to cut wood pulp in the woods surrounding them. That was the job that he had done with Butch before, correct? Exactly. Okay. So he claimed that he let himself in the front door of the shop, Mr. Collins had given him a key, and discovered that his saws had not been sharpened, so he went back to his trailer, changed his clothes, turned on the TV, and starting, started rebuilding a rifle that he had dismantled. He further stated that at about 8.30 that morning, he saw Mr. Collins pull into the saw shop lot. So after he finished with his rifle, he changed back into his work clothes and went to the shop. It was at this point he discovered the bodies of Marvin Collins and Irvin Schilling in the small office area of the saw shop. After he found the bodies, he ran about a block to the Bloss service stations, which was a local gas station, and David Bloss, who was the owner's son, called the sheriff's office. David Bloss then sent Kenny across the road to get Claude Hayes. Now, Claude Hayes was the father-in-law of Marvin Collins, one of the men who had just been found dead. So Kenny Rykoff runs across the street and says he couldn't find Mr. Hayes, so he went back to the service station to get Bloss. And both of them went back to the saw shop with Bloss following behind. On the way, he saw Jean Collins. She was the wife of Marvin Collins, one of the murdered men. And uh, Kenny saw her putting gas in her car. But wait, if she was the wife of Marvin Collins, then Claude Hayes was actually her father, correct? Correct. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Kenny Rykoff had the unenviable job of telling Mrs. Collins that he found her husband's body at the saw shop. Of course, she was, I'm sure, very upset. So he drove her a few blocks away to her grandparents' house, and her father, Claude Hayes, happened to be there. 
He told Mr. Hayes the story, and the two of them went back to the saw shop. Sheriff's deputies arrived at the saw shop shortly after Rykoff and Hayes. The deputies questioned Rykoff, Hayes, Bloss, and a passing motorist who'd stopped at the scene. After the deputies questioned Kenny, he went to check on the murder victim's wife, Mrs. Collins, and then went with her father, Mr. Hayes, to pick up the kids. Kelly, who was in the hospital where he had been since November 29th with a broken leg, and Candy, who was their 16-year-old daughter, and she was at high school at the time. So wait, Kelly had been in the hospital then for, what, 13 days at that point? With a broken leg. Yeah. That's that's quite a long time. It is. Either they had substandard medical care or he was or his leg was shattered. Who knows? I don't know. It was on their way back to town that they were stopped by Adams County Sheriff William Holland. He pulled them over and took Kenny with him back to the sheriff's department to get a statement from him about what had happened that morning. He was then returned to Brooks, where he went to the saw shop. State crime lab investigators were at the scene, and they did a gunshot residue test on Kenny. They basically tested his skin and tested his clothes. Kenny was taken back to the Adams Sheriff Station to sign his statement and then gave police permission to search his trailer. He was released at about 2 o'clock, and he hitchhiked back to Brooks, which was about 20 miles, which, by the way, I feel like that was really rude behavior by the sheriffs. Or was it a really 70s thing to do? Well, everybody did hitchhike in the 70s. It was a very common thing. But yeah, if they took him out to Adams, I mean, 20 miles isn't that close. No, it's not. You couldn't have walked it. They they drove him there. They took him back to the scene. They drove him back to the sheriff's station, and then they're like, peace Peace out. (laughs) Exactly. So anyway, he hitchhikes 20 miles back to Brooks, and there he is arrested at 6 p.m. So within 10 hours of the discovery of the body, 19-year-old Kenny Rykoff was arrested for the two murders. Rykoff's friends and family believe that the death of Butch, the death of George Ann Willett, and the accident that broke Kelly Collins' leg turned many people in Brooks against him. You know, I also get that because remember, this is 1974. And despite counterculture movements of the 60s and and some of the things that were changing in the country, especially in a small town, I would imagine that they would still hold a lot of judgments against you. Oh, yeah, I'm sure I, I agree with you. It's like, you know, who your family was and how much money they had. Exactly. What they did for a living. How well mannered you were. Correct. You know, like little scuddly kids who run around and don't pay attention to their adults and be polite to them. Right. I'm sure that they were all, you know, he was judged to be sort of persona non grata. He was perceived as less than. Yes. That's a good way of saying it. That's a good way of saying it. And small town rumor mills can be brutal. Oh, totally. And I'm just imagining that because I didn't grow up in a small town. (laughs) But I saw Footloose. But I've read things, okay? (laughs) The Adams County Sheriff at the time, William Holland, who had been an investigator at the time of the murder, also referred to Rykoff's background and problems. Holland testified that he had arrested Kenny Rykoff in fewer than 10 hours because, quote, well, things had not been going well for Mr. Rykoff, unquote. That's like every small town sheriff you see in a movie and the kid is the good guy. Totally. There was also a quote in a newspaper that I read from a guy named Vern Harrell, who was the Newchester town constable at the time. And Newchester is actually a city in which Brooks was located. Remember Brooks being an unincorporated area. Mr. Harrell says, quote, Ken wasn't up to par the way many people in Brooks thought he should be. They looked on him as being sort of poorly, unquote. 
that to me is all the judgment in the world. Right. They looked on him as being poorly. That makes him guilty of murder. Yeah. But isn't that an interesting way to describe somebody anyway? It is. He's sort of poorly. Yeah. Does he mean money-wise? Does he mean education? Does he mean family or all of them? Probably all. As Kathy had just said, Kenny Rykoff was arrested on December 11th, 1974, and his trial began seven months later. In the seven months leading up to the trial, Kenny Rykoff had three court-appointed attorneys. His first lawyer dropped the case about four months in because he said he couldn't devote enough time to it. And honestly, Kath, with two counts of capital murder against him, I can't imagine how much time that would take. And he probably needed an income, right, to take care of his family. It would be all-consuming, which led me to believe, like, when I was reading it, I'm like, okay, maybe secretly he felt like he was in over his head. And that was his excuse. I don't know. But it was good that he got out. It, it was good that he got out. And honestly, I don't think I could ever be a criminal defense attorney because wouldn't you always be afraid of the per one person who was innocent? Totally. Who then got convicted because yes, of you. Exactly. His second court-appointed lawyer was a man named John Day, and he was replaced after about a month at the request of Kenny Rykoff's parents. Mr. Day was from a town about 80 miles northwest, and his parents felt that they really should have a lawyer who was from Adams County. I agree with them, by the way. Do you? But, yeah, because 80 miles, if you, if you want to interview witnesses, like assess people's credibility, walk the crime scene, like there's so many things that have to happen at the scene of a murder or, you know, in the area of the murder. Okay, you know what's funny is my mind didn't even go there. It was more like he was one of those people because he lived far away. Like you have the, the different attitude about, oh, it's kind of like here. Oh, they're from Los Angeles. Right. Oh, how funny. Or like, lame. Like, like an outsider. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure it's funny as much as sad, but okay, I'll take, I'll take funny. <laughs> His final attorney was a man named David Bennett, who joined the case in April of 1975, so just three months before the trial began on July 17th. The trial had been moved to the city of Mauston, which is in Juneau County, Wisconsin, about 25 miles southwest of Adams, after prosecutors failed to turn up enough jurors to try the case in Adams County. You know what I thought was interesting, though, is that Mauston is where Irvin Schilling, the other murder victim, was from. And it made oh, me... interesting. So can he get a fair trial there? Probably because it was far enough away from Brooks. 25 I miles? I don't know. He hitchhiked, I mean... he hitchhiked 20 miles to Brooks. Yeah, well, I mean... I didn't see anything that implied that that was the case. I just thought it was interesting that that's where they had gone. And most of the information on here doesn't really say much about Irvin Schilling. Not at all. You know, like the articles really gloss over who he was because it seemed that he was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. A special prosecutor had to be hired by Adams County when then Adams County District Attorney Charles Pollux revealed that he didn't have any experience with murder trials. The revolving door of public defenders probably contributed to what turned out to be a very lopsided trial. Kenny Rykoff's attorney wasn't given any investigative assistance until very late in the case, and other than the defendant, only one witness testified in his favor at the trial. That's incredible. Well, you know what made me think of the Joplin case when we were talking about testifying at your own trial? You had made the comment that you're either naive or a narcissist. In this case, I think he was naive. Yeah. Like I said, you're either innocent or a narcissist. Oh. But <laughs> <laughs> naive, innocent, it's kind of the same thing, right? Potato, potato. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> the other witness who testified in his defense was a man named R.A. Steindler, who was a ballistics expert who had worked for more than 30 years with police and crime labs in New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, and was the author of several books on firearms. 
there were two who testified, obviously, for the defense. The prosecution had 21 witnesses who testified against Kenny Rykoff. According to one of the articles written by journalist Richard Yeager, who we had referenced at the beginning of this podcast, there were six people who would have testified in defense of Rykoff, disputing some of the damaging evidence that was presented by the prosecution, but they were never called to testify. It is shocking to me that there are only two witnesses in the defense case. It is shocking. Was that a function of the three months? Was it a function of small town or was it a function of somebody not doing criminal cases like this very often? Honestly, I don't know because there weren't the the articles that I read weren't super detailed on the machinations of the trial and leading up to it. I believe the third attorney only had a couple months to prepare for trial which is nothing. Okay. Yeah. He had three months. It is. Oh, so it's, that's, that's really not a lot for a double murder. Special prosecutor Lent argued that Rykoff's 22 caliber Ruger automatic pistol was the weapon used to kill Mr. Collins and Mr. Schilling. The sheriff's deputies had found it under a porch enclosure of the trailer home Rykoff was renting and said it was the murder weapon because seven 22 caliber shell casings had been found at the murder scene. Alan Wilimovsky, who was a state crime lab firearm specialist, testified that the seven casings came from Rykoff's gun based on lab tests and comparisons he made with other shells fired from the gun. Mr. Steinler, the ballistics expert who testified in support of Kenny Rykoff, said that he ran similar tests of Rykoff's gun and none of the shell casings matched the casings found at the murder scene. Steinler said that Wilimovsky only used three markings on the shells to determine a match when there are eight to 12 different markings that need to be used to make a positive ID. In response, on the last day of trial, Special Prosecutor Lent brought Monty Lutz to the stand, who was a firearms expert from the State Regional Crime Lab. He supported the testimony of Wilimovsky and said that in his examination of Wilimovsky's microscopic photos of the shell casings, he came up with at least 14 similar textbook example markings that matched the casings found at the murder scene. However, neither of the prosecution's ballistics experts could identify the bullets recovered from the two bodies as coming from Rykoff's gun. And Mr. Steinler was never even given the bullets to examine. The gun and the bullets continued to bring up questions, including where the casings were found and the number of shots fired. Mr. Collins was shot six times and Mr. Schilling was shot twice, meaning eight bullets, but there were only seven casings found. There was additional testimony about bullet holes in the wall and a window that showed as many 11 shots had been fired, and Rykoff's Ruger only held nine shots. In addition, if you'll recall, on the day of the murders, gun residue tests were performed on Kenny Rykoff's hands and clothes. This was done about two and a half hours after the murders, and the results of both tests were negative. About three weeks after the murders, then District Attorney Pollux said in an article published in the Adams County Times that the motive for the murder was robbery. Jean Collins, Marvin's wife, reported $20 had been missing from the cash box in the shop. And when Rykoff was arrested, he had $19 in his pocket. That narrative on the motive changed after a preliminary hearing when prosecutors discovered that several people, including Marvin Collins, owed Kenny Rykoff money. After that, the special prosecutor said that Rykoff had killed Collins out of rage. Mrs. Collins and her father, Claude Hayes, testified about two incidents in which Mr. Collins had chewed out Rykoff and they could tell he was mad. 
Rykoff responded that that was how Mr. Collins gave people instructions, so he didn't see it that way. One of the incidents happened at a bar where there were a lot of people around, but the prosecutor didn't call any of the witnesses to the stand, including the bartender, who witnessed the whole thing. I read in an article that Collins, the 200-pound giant, (laughs) was an aggressive guy, quick to temper, kind of a hothead, but that apparently was what Kenny Rykoff was used to seeing. I think it was just his nature, though, and I think some people deal with that better than others. Yeah. That it seemed to be his nature, based on based on this article and people interviewed. He ju- he just seemed to be one of those gruff characters, right? And that's kind of what you expect from a gruff character. And he wasn't chewing him out. It sounds like he was always very aggressive in the way he spoke as well, which some people would take as chewing out. And then clearly, I think because Kenny saw Marvin Collins as a second father, he saw that as just his temperament, and that's how he talked. But he knew that there was still he was he was trying to help him out. After eight days and deliberating for five hours on July 23, 1975, a jury of seven women and five men found Kenny Rykoff guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. Within two weeks after that, he was sentenced to two consecutive life terms at the State Reformatory at Green Bay. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie, and even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange, and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. <laughs> so if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. F-O-O-D dot com slash killer D. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durban Marshall credit card bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson natural boneless chicken breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. After being convicted for the murders of Marvin Collins and Irvin Schilling, 
Kenny Rykoff appealed the convictions. He had a new attorney for his appeal, state public defender Howard Eisenberg, who had been appointed as his attorney by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. His appeal was heard by the same judge who had presided over his initial trial, Circuit Court Judge Lowell Schoengarth. <clears throat> In addition to motions that stated that the evidence used to convict Kenny Rykoff was insufficient, Mr. Eisenberg also brought to light a July 8, 1975 John Doe hearing, and I'm going to put that in quotes, that was held in an Adams County court pertaining to the murders. Now, the John Doe hearing is apparently something that prosecutors can do. It's presided over by a judge as opposed to like a grand jury where there's 12 of your peers who are hearing the evidence that is brought forth. And the public defender said that the secret hearing was improperly called and conducted, and the way it was done denied Rykoff a fair trial. The John Doe trial was also referred to as a, quote, dress rehearsal, since many of the state's witnesses testified at this secret session. In addition, Rykoff's attorney was not given access to any of the testimony that was heard. This occurred six days before the start of the first trial. Judge Schoengarth, after hearing this, immediately denied the new trial, did not go into chambers, did not look up other case law, just said no. At which point, Mr. Eisenberg stated that he would appeal this ruling to the state Supreme Court. On February 2nd, 1977, the Wisconsin State Supreme Court heard oral argument on the appeal. The defense was requesting a new trial for Kenny Rykoff. And frankly, when I read the court opinion, I was shocked at how short it was. And they got really to the point. It was a four to two decision in favor of giving him a new trial because of the violation of his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. And essentially, the court said, look, whether somebody invokes their silence during an interview at the time of trial, at the time of arrest, it doesn't matter. You don't get to refer to it and somehow imply that they're guilty because they invoked this right. And so what the prosecutor did is he asked the sheriff three questions regarding Kenny Rykoff's silence. He asked another uh, officer two questions, and then he referenced it three times in his closing argument. So I'm just going to go through a couple of the questions. Question, what reaction, if any, did you note in the defendant? Answer, there was no word spoken. He just put his wrists out like this for the handcuffs and never said a word. Question, and immediately about the time of his arrest, did the defendant in your presence make any denial of guilt? And then there were objections by the defense to all of this. The court overruled the objections and the answer was no, sir. There were no questions asked and no statements made about his guilt. Another one was question. And on the way from Brooks to the jail, did the defendant attempt to engage you in any conversation concerning the crime? Answer no. Question. Did he in any way protest his arrest? Answer no. Question. At the jail, when he was in your presence being booked and his clothes and money taken from him, did he attempt to engage in any conversation about the crime at that time? Answer no. Did he in any way profess his innocence? Answer no. What, what the prosecutor did was improperly imply that Kenny Rykoff was guilty because he did not profess his innocence at the time of his arrest. And the state Supreme Court said, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter whether he's arrested. It doesn't matter whether he's in an interrogation. You don't get to refer to his silence. 
And then they also pointed out that he actually took the stand in his own defense and professed his innocence over and over and over. But because he hadn't done it initially, that's what the prosecutor was saying. Well, if you were innocent, aren't you going to tell us that? Yeah, exactly. But you're not allowed to do that. And so it it was a rather easy decision for the four justices. It was an incredibly short opinion. Okay, but wait, it makes a lot of sense, right? Fifth Amendment can't be used against you. Right. Two judges dissented. Two judges dissented. And one of them basically said, oh, because what, what happens is, let's say a trial court makes an error. They, they can agree that six judges can agree that the trial court made an error. However, there's prejudicial error and there's harmless error. So four judges said this was definitely prejudicial error. You can't do that. And, and they said the prosecutor wasn't acting in good faith, essentially. I'm not a judge, but I would agree. So, yeah. So then the two dissenters said, wait, wait, wait. Maybe it was improper. However, this was harmless error. And it was harmless error because there was so much circumstantial evidence pointing to his guilt that were dissenting. So they talked a lot of the, about, about the circumstantial evidence that pointed to his guilt. So now that the Wisconsin Supreme Court has ruled that Kenny can have a new trial. His parents take a loan out against their farm and uh, they hire a guy named Jack McManus. They're quoted as saying, we want to assure that he gets a fair trial this time. We didn't want him to take whatever lawyer the court would appoint like last time. Dang. I know. So Rykoff actually saves $700 while he was in prison making money. And I mean, probably like, you know, 13 cents an hour. Exactly. But he saved $700 toward hiring a new attorney. So Jack McManus, he's a noteworthy lawyer, and he's done a lot of very high-profile cases at this point. And he's colorful and bombastic. He's been compared to Jerry Spence. And he's just a well-known guy who has a very, very serious command presence and supposedly really enjoys the spotlight. A lot of attorneys don't enjoy the spotlight. They don't want to be interviewed. But he was a guy who who was embracing it. So he was like OJ's lawyers. Exactly, exactly. And he was quoted in an article by Richard Yeager as saying, quote, in my preliminary review of the case, I am thoroughly convinced there was a miscarriage of justice. I talked to Kenny at Green Bay State Reformatory by telephone today. He knows I'm on the case and things will get rolling right away. Now, what's interesting about all of this too is that journalist Richard Yeager with the Wisconsin State Journal, who we cited at the beginning of this podcast, he is actually credited with bringing to light a lot of the information that is going to be used now at this new trial. He conducted a two-month investigation. He spoke with more than 40 people, including witnesses, jurors, family members, lawyers, and friends. And he also interviewed Kenny Rykoff in prison for about four hours to talk to him about all this that was going on. He also reviewed more than 2,000 pages of court records and transcripts and rechecked the information that was contained in these documents. That is an investigative journalist. No kidding. What a stud. This had to have just engulfed his life. Oh, completely. Apparently, this all started because he had received an anonymous tip that the Rykoff killing was connected to another murder that had happened nearby, and it was where an entire family was killed. Now, he couldn't connect the two, But it did bring up several inconsistencies in the Rykoff conviction, which is what caused him to do a much deeper dive into the facts of the case. Some of the discrepancies he brought up were a little startling to me that they had made it past the first trial. And Jack McManus used these in the second trial. 
he discovered that there were eight latent fingerprints that had been found in the crime scene that didn't belong to Kenny Rykoff. And the state crime lab had asked the Adams County Sheriff's Department to furnish the crime lab with additional fingerprint samples of people who would have access to the shop. And the Adams County Sheriff's Department chose not to comply with that. No, thanks. Yeah, yeah we're good. Thanks. We're good. We don't yeah. need you. In the first trial, according to the prosecution, the entry into the shop where Mr. Collins and Mr. Schilling were killed was supposedly made through a rear door. But it was discovered to have been barred and padlocked the night before by Mrs. Collins, and Kenny didn't have a key to this padlock. They also said that Mrs. Collins may have been the target of this murder because every day for years, she was the person who opened the shop at 8.30. Every day she opened it at 8.30, her husband strolled in around mid-morning. My guess is he slept in and she was doing the hard work. Just a guess. Right. But that was the first day she had ever not done that. Kenny would not have known that Mr. Collins was going to be there instead. He would have assumed it was Mrs. Collins. He lived 70 feet away in a trailer. He knew the comings and goings of that family. He knew what was going on. This was the day, though, that she was supposed to go into town and pick up her son from the hospital where he had been with a broken leg for eight and a half years, something like that. (laughs) It seems like it was that long. A long time. But the biggest thing that he found. Wait, really quickly. Did yeah. anyone, did anyone surmise why Mrs. Collins would have been a victim? I, I didn't read anything. I didn't find anything either. I thought that was kind of odd, but I think the point of it is that Kenny couldn't have thought that Collins, Mr. Collins was there to kill him if Mrs. Collins was the one who was supposed to have been there. Right. He never, he customarily came mid-morning. And was then always there with his wife. Right. But the biggest item that Richard Yeager had uncovered is that Kenny was arrested before they'd even found what they were claiming was the murder weapon. It's shocking to me that they interview four people at the scene. They interview Kenny. They interview Mr. Collins' father-in-law. Claude Hayes. A random passerby. And then the, 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 the guy who worked at the gas station. David Bloss. Yeah. And then, then they're like, all right, Kenny, it's you. You're the guy. Without even having found the purported murder weapon. And they also found out that Claude Hayes owned a very similar gun to the one that was the murder weapon. It was also a 22 Ruger. It was never taken. It was never compared. It was never analyzed. Not that Mr. Hayes would have necessarily had a reason to kill his son-in-law, but it just goes to the point that this is Wisconsin. It's rural Wisconsin. I'm betting a lot of people had guns. They didn't look any further than one that after he was arrested, after Kenny was arrested, was found at his home. Right. And, and the prosecution witness said, oh, well, I tested it. It was consistent with the uh, shell casings. Therefore, I didn't need to test any others. Right. They, they basically, they seem to be trying to fit a case around Kenny. And again, is this because of what we were talking about? He was seen as being poorly, if I'm quoting the former town constable of New Chester. Exactly. <laughs> it, it sounds like it was almost, like, I can't tell if they had something against him because they thought he was just some, like, skinky teenage kid, or if... They were just that sloppy but wanted to get the case solved that they just figured it, it was probably him anyway. Yeah. Well, the good news was all of that evidence. There were also photographs that were not given to the defense in the first trial. Um, there, were, there were a lot of things that were not given to the defense in the first trial. And then Jack McManus brought everything out in the second trial. And he called a bunch of witnesses. And eventually the jury reached an acquittal. 
The jury only deliberated for six hours when they reached the decision to acquit him of the, both of the charges. Do you have any idea how long the trial was? I didn't see it anywhere. The trial had began on September 28th. It didn't conclude for 18 days. Wow. That's a long time. That is a long time. It just shows that the defense attorney was pulling like everyone to the stand. Well, and the other thing too with McManus is that this one was in an out of gamey county courthouse in Appleton, Wisconsin. So it wasn't even near Adams County at this point. He got the venue changed. Oh, that was smart. Yeah. And and obviously it worked. After Rykoff was acquitted of the charges, he became a free man on October 16th, 1977. And he was quoted as saying, I just feel like screaming for the whole world to hear every time I think about it and realize I'm free. I just can't believe it. Here we are post-acquittal. And Jack McManus represents Kenny Rykoff in his claim to the state of Wisconsin for wrongful conviction. They ask for damages for unlawful incarceration and attorney's fees. And the claims board denied his claim. A lot of people assume that when you are wrongfully convicted and imprisoned, it's automatically a windfall. But that is not the case. And it was certainly not the case in 1977. The claims board stated they had carefully reviewed the evidence offered and the arguments made by Kenny Rykoff and his attorney. The board pointed out that they had to review evidence or circumstances that were discovered since the claimant's conviction. And they say, quote, while these factors may well have created doubt in the minds of the second jury, we find that they are not sufficient to establish innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. Unquote. So in order to prevail, Kenny Rykoff was supposed to, it's sort of like the tables were flipped, and he was supposed to establish his innocence beyond a reasonable doubt. What's the difference between guilt beyond a reasonable doubt and innocent beyond a reasonable doubt? Shouldn't that just be a flip? It's, I mean, it's the same burden of proof, but now when you're wanting money from the state, especially back then, you have to prove your innocence. An acquittal is simply an acquittal. It simply says, hey, the state didn't meet its burden against you. And so it doesn't say you are, quote unquote, innocent. So how is he supposed to prove he's innocent? Basically by rehashing everything. Wow. Once Kenny Rykoff got out of prison, he'd been through hell and back. And at the end of his three-year incarceration, he began dating a 21-year-old young lady named Nancy Potts, who he'd corresponded with while he was in prison. Nancy was a certified nurse practitioner, and Kenny's aunt had been in the hospital for a while and Nancy was one of her nurses. Kenny's aunt had asked Nancy to help her write to Kenny in prison, so she did, and the two of them kind of picked up a correspondence just between them, and once he got out of prison, they started dating. They became engaged on June 8th of 1978, and the wedding was scheduled for October 14th of that same year, which was the closest Saturday to October 17th, which would have been the one-year anniversary of him being declared a free man. And how old was he when he left prison? He would have been 22. Okay, so he's 22 years old. And there's there's a book called Got Murder by Martin Heinz. Yes, like Got Milk. <laughs> <laughs> and he basically says in this book that while Kenny was in prison, not only was he corresponding with Nancy while he was in prison, he also began corresponding with Janet Williams Henningsen, who was the mother of twin daughters and had been living with his brother. 
So he is in jail and he's corresponding in a very romantic fashion with these two women. And at the time, Gianna's father was the sheriff of Adams County, having taken over for Sheriff Holland. Correct. So Kenny gets out of jail. And I think both women were pining for his affection. Even though she was living with his brother? Apparently. Gianna only lived with his brother for a year. So I don't know if she was still living with his brother when Kenny was released. Okay. I don't know that. Anyway, so Kenny gets released. Gianna's looking for love in all the wrong places and doesn't <laughs> find it. So she gets bitter. At, because he get, he starts dating Nancy as soon as he gets out of jail or they, out of prison. Exactly. So she winds up, uh, Gianna winds up cutting up Nancy's bike seat and slashing her tires. And she was eventually prosecuted for that. But the point is, they did not like each other. Well, did they not like each other or did Jana not like Nancy? I think Jana did not like Nancy. So what happens is, very shortly before the wedding is to take place, Jana calls Nancy and says, hey, can you come to my trailer? I want to talk to you. So Nancy tells some co-workers about it, saying that after her shift, she was going to go over and visit this girl who was mad at her. She told her co-workers that Jana was going to apologize for the bike incident and end the feud and just let bygones be bygones. But that is not what happened. So Nancy shows up at Henningsen's trailer, Jana's trailer. She's immediately attacked. Jana starts strangling her with a scarf and beating her. Just then, a 13-year-old babysitter shows up at the trailer. She is there to babysit Jana's twins. And, of course, she comes into the scene, and she's completely freaked out. Wait, how old are the twins? They're, like, two. Yeah, they're two years old. Two so years old. I'm just trying to do the math that if the twins aren't Richards, that means they were probably from her husband, since she has a different name than her dad, a different last name than her dad. So she has the twins. She lives with Richard. She's pining for Kenny all this time. I guess so. Wow, that's a busy life. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Very busy life. A lot life. of balls to juggle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> so the 13-year-old babysitter comes upon the scene. Jana tells her to hit Nancy with this big iron frying pan, and she's freaked out, and she won't do it. Yeah. While Jana's strangling her, she wants the babysitter to hit her in the head? Exactly. So the babysitter says no, and then Jana basically says, okay, you hold this which was the scarf around Nancy's neck. And then Jana basically pummels her to death. Then Jana and the babysitter put Nancy in the trunk of Nancy's car and they basically go hide it somewhere. So Jana and the babysitter get in the car. They pack up the two twins in there with the dead woman in the trunk. Yes. Wow. Yes. And then they drive it. I read they drove it like a mile away. Yeah, it didn't even, it wasn't Actually, even very far. It wasn't. I think it was a half a mile away. And then they walked back to Jana's trailer. Yes. So guess when poor Nancy's body is found? The day of the wedding. Exactly. Now, Kenny was a suspect at the very beginning because you have a man who's already been convicted of two capital murders. So I'm sure, obviously, that's where they're going to look first because despite the acquittal, everybody in these small towns think that's what it is. But it wasn't him. No, it and, wasn't. And thankfully, they found that out really quickly because the babysitter told her parents. Oh, is that what happened? That's I didn't read that. Okay. Yeah. I knew that the police had interviewed the hospital workers, but um, she you, was overwhelmed by guilt. Can you imagine? Oh, the babysitter. Yeah, of course. Can you imagine being the sheriff and your daughter is a murderer? Or was the daughter counting on her father being a sheriff? Yeah, maybe. That's true. That's true. Poor Kenny, man. No, Talk just, about bad karma. We talk about Wesley Tuttle in our second episode, how that guy got every break there was. And mm -hmm. he was guilty as sin. Yeah. 
and Kenny Rykoff isn't guilty of any of this. And all this crap just keep, keeps getting dumped in his lap. I know. Crazy. On March 2nd, 2017, Kenny Ray Rykoff died at the St. Mary's Hospital Medical Center in Madison, Wisconsin. He was described in his obituary as having been a master mason for many years. He loved to travel and he was able to make it to Alaska on his dream trip. He was an avid hunter. He enjoyed motorcycles and watching college sports and the Badgers on TV. I'm guessing that's a Wisconsin team. Okay. <laughs> and it said he loved life and his constant companion, Skippy, which I'm assuming is an animal. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help but notice, and I have no proof of this because I can't verify it anywhere, but his former wife, Candy, was spelled the exact same way as murder victim Marvin Collins' daughter. And I wonder if that they ended be, up together. That would be bizarre. It would be bizarre. But like I said, I, I can't prove it. It's just an odd spelling of candy. Yes. Considering the man never left a 50-mile radius of the town he grew up in. Right. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you liked us, please go to Apple Reviews and rate us or subscribe or follow wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we're open to suggestions, so please feel free to hit us up. Absolutely. And please follow us on our socials. We are at Killer Destinations Podcast on Instagram. And we're looking at starting a Facebook discussion group for all of you who would like to know some of the details, some of the background, or ask us any questions. The story behind the story. Exactly. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.